0: they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's
1: ChumbaCasino.com
0: and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Hello, this is Eric Weinstein. I'm going to be recording a short introduction to this episode because I think it's probably the most important episode of The Portal to date. That said, under normal circumstances, I probably would have either edited this heavily or not released it at all. It starts off quite slow and it gets quite awkward before finding its pace. Now, what's going on is is that the interview subject is none other than my brother, Brett Weinstein. In Brett's case, you probably know him, if you know him at all, as the heroic professor who stood up against what can only be described, I swear I'm not making this up, as a Maoist insurrection at an American college in the Pacific Northwest, the Evergreen State College. It was a very strange situation because somehow, the national media that we would normally have thought would have covered such a story, for example, the media that covered the takeover of Strait Hall at Cornell in the 60s, that media was almost absent completely. At least they were absent for a very long time before they entered late in the game. And why is that? Because the story ran counter-narrative. That is, the students at the Evergreen State College who were behaving in a racist fashion were actually students of color. And this was an exactly counter-narrative story. And Brett, who stood up to this uh, racist insurrection, was in fact somebody with a history of standing up against racism. He had in fact been a a student at the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater, and Ivy League school, and had had to leave because of death threats when he stood up for women of color who were being abused for the amusement and the sexual amusement of white fraternity students. So Brett was supposed to be familiar to many of you from that, from an old national news story. And he was also the hero of a book called The Taper's Morning Bath. But somehow the news media who chose not to report on the Evergreen story was not very interested either in figuring out who Brett was because the stories showed that there was a contradictory problem with the main narrative in some sense that's going, some sense that's going to be recapitulated in this episode there is an official narrative about what happened in the scientific episode and there is a narrative which i think is much closer to the truth which i happen to be one of a very small number of witnesses to this alternate story now the key question is whether to tell the story or not and you're going to see that both of us have a certain amount of trepidation and energy around the question of whether or not to break a long standing public silence when brett found himself as professor in exile along with his wife, Heather Hying, I had thought that the American biology establishment would realize that one of their own had been thrown overboard as Jetsam and that he would have been invited to many universities to give seminars in biology. And it took a while for me to understand that because he was found at the Evergreen State College, the people who taught at highly ranked research universities thought that Brett was something more like a teacher rather than a researcher. In fact, he'd been the top student of one of the most important evolutionary theorists, uh, United States, Richard Alexander at the uh, University of Michigan, as well as a student of Bob Trivers, formerly of Harvard, arguably one of the greatest living evolutionary theorists, I think presently at Rutgers. Brett was somebody who had actually done really interesting work in his thesis. And for some reason, the system found it very disturbing to consider the full implications of his work. I think in this episode, we're going to do something interesting. I see Brett in two separate ways. On the one hand, I view him as a very heroic figure, and he's an absolutely brilliant person. It's been a pleasure um, sparring with him throughout my life. However, I'm also his older brother, and you're going to hear me at sort of my overbearing uh, best, um, browbeating him a bit. Now, the point isn't to push him down, but quite the contrary. I'm rather competitive as Brett's older brother. And I don't want to compete with the weakest version of Brett, the professor in exile. Instead, I want him seated again inside of the institution where he always belonged. And in order to do that, I want him to tell the tale not with embellishment, but as it actually happened. Because I think it's one of the most fascinating episodes in modern biology that I've ever heard. So I hope that you like it. We're going to put it in front of you as an experiment, and we're going to test to see whether or not I'm correct that the portal can be used to augment the usual channels. I believe that a lot of us are sitting on intellectual gold. I don't think that the story that... Uh, somebody's work didn't see the light of day or got attributed to somebody else is as exotic as the institutions would have you believe in fact I think it's quite common I think many of us find that we don't have careers inside of science because something goes wrong quite early when we're quite vulnerable and my hope is is that some of you listening who I know are struggling as graduate students or as postdocs or as undergraduates will listen to this And find some courage to stand up for yourself because quite frankly, if you choose not to do it in order to make nice with your fields, the chances are you will probably won't have a career in the long term. You might as well swing for the fences and you might as well clear your throat and tell your story as it actually happened without fear. I don't know that this is going to succeed, but we're gonna run an experiment, and I think both Brett and I are up for it to find out wherever it goes. The one thing I would say is that if anyone else in the story wants to tell their version of events, it would be an honor to have you on the portal. There are no bad people in this story, in my opinion. There are a lot of bad incentives. And if we're going to actually fix this system, we're going to have to look past the interpersonal. But the point of this, in my opinion, is, is that I think it's sufficient to open the case again and to seat Brett Weinstein inside of the university system, that is the research university system where he has always belonged. So have a listen and I hope you like it. Hello, you found the portal. I'm your host, Eric Weinstein, and I'm joined today by none other than my own brother, Dr. Brett Weinstein. Brett, welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, um, what should we do? What do you think?
0: Wow. Uh, Well, I don't know. I would imagine a certain fraction of your audience is going through the usual sort
1: of... uh, They randomly call us either Brett or Eric. Yes. So far as I can tell.
0: Which our parents also did while we were growing up. I suppose that's true. Including the pet's names were also sometimes thrown in, if I recall correctly. That's true.
1: Uh, Okay. So if you don't mind, I was trying to think about the fact that we have an opportunity to do something that might be slightly different because you and I share a lot. And what I thought, um, is that we should begin to really focus on areas of your expertise, uh, with respect to biology rather than the way in which many people have come to know you. So can I ask you to just quickly dispense with, in 30 seconds, how the world has come to recognize you if they recognize you at all? Sure. Uh, to the extent that I am recognized, it
0: is typically as a result of the meltdown at Evergreen and my stance. It's Evergreen State College. Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, where I taught for 14 years, along with my wife, Heather Hying, who taught there for 15 years. Uh, we faced a, a mob of people who accused me of racism, and these were students. They were students I had never met. And the event was so colorful, and eventually when the world caught on to the fact that the protesters who became rioters had uploaded footage to the net, and so the whole event could effectively be seen from their perspective, uh, it raised interest in some other quadrants. So, for example, I ended up on Joe Rogan's program, which is the place I'm probably most recognized from. And you know, the, my first appearance there, we talked about the evergreen situation. And anyway, that's uh, that's the, the bulk of how people know me.
1: All right, so you were a biologist teaching at a relatively obscure college that had previously been known for social activism. And I, I didn't love your intro- introduction because when you say, <laughs> well, the students accuse me of racism, Uh, That leaves sort of a weird question, like, why was he accused of racism? Uh, Let me solve the puzzle just immediately. Maybe you can't do this because that was the closest we'd seen to a Maoist takeover inside of the United States of America ever. Like it was a case of mass insanity and the videos showed it to be mass insanity. And unless you had been indoctrinated to believe that Maoism uh, of some form, Maoist reeducation was normal the rest of the world said, OMG, what the heck is going on at this completely insane? And it wasn't just like, um, one of these college craziness pieces. This is really an episode of broad institutional madness that was localized there. And I just, I want to take it to be self evident because it is self evident. The video exists and if you took the people who were trying to pretend that you were a racist in their own terms, that was sufficient to, it was like the unreliable narrator. They were, they were debunking themselves in the eyes of everyone who hadn't come under the spell of this particular kind of madness. Well,
0: there's a little, little more to it. Um, in the sense that they were entirely unprepared for a white guy willing to say, no, I'm simply not a racist. And, It just didn't occur to them that that was going to happen and it didn't occur to them that my own students weren't going to flee to their side at the point that they leveled their accusation because those things would have been normal in this environment. But in my case, I grew up in a home. There were plenty of flaws in that home, as you know, but one of the places I don't think it was flawed was that it was very clear headed about issues of inequality, race, justice. And so I, I really have the sense that it's these issues were really not new to me. And I had a long history
1: at the college, lots of students of color. You're explaining too much. I don't mean to be rude about it, but they were just crazy. They were crazy. But my point
0: is the accusation is in and of itself. So powerful in modern circumstances that people the idea of standing up to it doesn't occur to most people. And the fact is, I was not well enough positioned. The thing descended into madness. It descended into literal anarchy with armed students roving the campus. The same mob was looking for me, searching car to car, for example. It was a very dangerous situation. With baseball
1: bats. With baseball
0: bats. But but what what I'm getting at is uh, I checked with myself and did not feel vulnerable to this accusation. I felt most people could not endure it, but I was in a position to, and in an
1: odd way. You've been effectively driven out of your own university as an undergraduate standing up against racism. Indeed. These people had flipped the script and said, if you don't sign up for our racism, you're a racist. Yeah. they did. I don't, you know, here's the thing. I, I have two documents that I've studied that have a lot of longevity to them. One begins with we hold these truths to to be self-evident and the other one begins with in the beginning. And I think we've made a huge mistake taking this as an argument. It's a non-serious position held by morons and idiots or people who've been indoctrinated and infected with an idea that there's something left wing about being a racist. I'm not interested in it. Mm -hmm. And I also think that it's really important to stop giving these people their due. Like, it's really important to exclude them from the conversation because if you have to have a three day symposium as to whether or not racism uh, can be redefined in a way that makes it impossible for certain people to be racist, but impossible for other people not to be racist, there's just no point. It just, it just needs to be thrown in the garbage because it just it's a suicide idea that wastes everyone's time and plunges the world into stupidity, madness, and hatred. Well, you, you and I are in total agreement about the necessity to shut the bad
0: actors Great. out of the, the conversation. I do have some concern about a large number of people who fall into one of two camps. They're either confused or they suffer from so much cowardice that they will sign up for ideas that they ought to know are wrong. Yeah, but...
1: I think you're not getting the message we've made a huge mistake and I refuse to spend time because these people have decided that this is a tax that we should pay, that they have a serious point. It's a non-serious point. It's a terrifying moronic non-serious point that you can redefine racism to be anti-racism and anti-racism to be racism. Nobody knows this better than me. Great. Okay. Are we done? We are good. With that aside, my concern, you know that I play this game, which is called what is the least interesting, interesting thing about X, where I take a person and I take their top characteristic. So for example, the least interesting, interesting thing about Dolly Parton is that she's busty. The most interesting things is that she's a genius level songwriter and a fantastic singer and entertainer and a great businesswoman. woman, doesn't matter. But the key point is we get hung up on some stupid superficial characteristic and we don't see the actual interest or majesty in a person. And I feel like that has happened to you. I feel like at some level, having known you for a very long time, you are an incredibly interesting person for totally different reasons than the reasons for which you have become famous. And I would like to use this this episode. And you're, by the way, you're welcome back anytime. Love to do a series with you. Love to you know, make this a regular part of our lives if people like it. Cool. I, I think you know
0: you, you and I both hear a lot of curiosity about what our relationship is like and what our discussions
1: sound Terrific. like. And so I think there's lots of room Great. for that. The portal is pleased to welcome new sponsor indeed.com. Now when you start any hiring process, you always have questions. Will you find good applicants from which to choose? Where will you find them? What about education, skill set, experience? And how will you know you've made the right hire? Well, Indeed is here to help. Millions of great candidates use Indeed every day to find their next opportunity. So you can post a job in minutes, and you can use screener questions to help create your short list of applicants fast. Sponsored jobs on Indeed accelerate the hiring process even further, boosting your posts with premium placement and relevant search results, helping you reach even more applicants. Indeed gives you the smart tools to make hiring decisions quickly and to be confident that you're making the right hire for your team. So post your job today at Indeed.com portal and find out why more than 3 million companies use Indeed for hiring. That's Indeed.com portal, the world's number one job site, Indeed.com portal. Returning sponsor Blinkist is an important company having solved the problem of how book people can remain book people. We're on our smartphones all day long, and that habituates us to smaller attention spans. But we still know we want to read books. How do we decide where we're going to invest then? Blinkist has a team of close readers and expert writers who fan out over great nonfiction titles and summarize them into 15-minute condensed summaries. We can either consume that through text or through audio and decide where we want to spend our attention. In fact, I looked at my friend Tim Ferriss' book, The 4-Hour Workweek, which tries to teach people how to be hyper-efficient. So there's a certain irony in this. They did a great job. So with Blinkist, you're always getting the ability to figure out where you want to do your reading. And if you don't want to read a particular book, you get to keep the summary in your head as an excellent index of what is what people are talking about when they're discussing the book, even if you didn't read it. So – Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash portal and try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash portal to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash portal. What I'd like to do is to try to be the foil for you that I don't think anybody else can be because I've actually I was tracking this story very early. And by the way, when I originally tried to get you help um, and allies, I think almost the only person who could get what was happening at Evergreen State was our mutual friend, Sam Harris, who was willing to amplify and retweet this because it was so confusing that most of the rest of the world just never seen these kinds of arguments. And now it's much more common for people to be aware of these problems. But when it started happening, we didn't even have any framework for how to think about these. Yeah, and in fact, Sam,
0: I remember even the content of his tweet where he entered this discussion where he suggested that what was necessary was a deprogramming for these people. And from living inside of this very confusing scenario, to hear a message of reason from the outside that it was visible how insane this was, Uh, meant a lot to me really it it changed things it it
1: was like a reality check sam is sam's a real hero in that regard it's just amazing that he got there early and he got there correct and you know more power to him yeah okay i as you know i was not happy about you being at evergreen state college long before this problem was occurring i viewed you as sort of retreating into this very obscure college and using the undergraduates as if they were graduate students teaching very advanced concepts uh, and running kind of a weird Harvard style program with very adventurous material with no recognition that this kind of uh, unusual educational environment was even occurring fair
0: unfair. Well, it's mostly fair. It was not, really an appropriate place I don't regret it I think for the last year or two Heather and I were living on borrowed time that this could have come for us in a worse way and it could have come for us uh at any moment but the the thing about the job I had was that it was the upside of a crazy experiment in education the founders of the college had broken every rule of a normal university and half of what they did in breaking it was crazy, and half of what they did was brilliant. Nobody ever bothered to separate the two from the prototype and, you know, fix the broken part. Didn't happen. But the administrators had no power and very little knowledge about what was going on in the classroom, which meant that I could create a learning environment that worked both from the point of view of students and worked from the point of view of of me in my objectives to keep advancing a research program that, frankly, I would have had no way to keep on at a normal college. I would have been so burdened by teaching that I couldn't have combined the two things. So anyway, I do think one has to figure out how to make their way in the world financially. One has to figure out where to raise their kids. And from many perspectives, as much of a mismatch as Evergreen was for me in some ways, in some other ways, it was not a bad place to be uh part. It gave me, I was anonymous from the point of the world and I could make progress on biology. Uh, so I have fewer regrets than I might.
1: Okay. This is so uncomfortable, but it is also the real substance of our relationship. I always resented the fact that you really excelled at and enjoyed teaching as much as you did. And you saw this in terms of a place to play with ideas, to teach students, to have a pleasant and enjoyable life, healthy as it was in the great outdoors, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And I still see these characteristics in you and it drives me nuts because you're you're your own worst enemy in some ways to me, what you really are to me is an unbelievable thinker and researcher and beneath this kind of um, very nice friendly pedagogue is a thinker that the world doesn't know. And I watched recently your interactions with Richard Dawkins and it was absolutely infuriating. I mean, You know, he's very clear It's like, well, Brett is a real hero so far as free speech and standing up for free inquiry goes, but he's very confused. Well, no, I don't think that that's right. I think that you guys had a really substantive interaction about biology, which I wish he would spend more time on because he's phenomenal at it when he's focused on it and you're phenomenal. And that was supposed to be a really different conversation, but because we got to know you the wrong way, in my opinion. You're always the guy who is strong enough to stand up to students at an obscure place. And this completely masks who you've always been and you're not willing to take up the yoke, which is the more important role for you.
0: Well, I don't know that I'm not willing. I think uh, you and I have a different approach to this and it may be, you know, birth order stuff or whatever, but, um, you know, and I also, I have the benefit of you in the world doing what you do, which, I do wonder sometimes what would have happened to me at Evergreen had I only had my own tools at my disposal. It's quite possible I would have been effectively snuffed out in private and I don't know what I would be doing at the moment. As it happens, the Evergreen story turned into rocket fuel that propelled me into a strata where there's lots of interesting things to do that may not be exactly what you're talking about. but. They, uh, they make sense.
1: Yeah, It's frustrating. I'm trying. I don't think you understand what it is that I'm trying to do here. I believe that you're miscategorized and you're really not grasping that this is my opportunity. No, I am. I am grasping it. What, What I think distinguishes
0: us is that we have very different styles with respect to approaching things. I, for example, take a certain perverse pleasure in watching Dawkins slowly move in my direction, which I believe is happening. Now, I would like him to move faster. He's not a young man, and I think it's actually quite important that he recognize where the errors in his own thinking are. And to be honest, I believe I know where at least several major ones live, and I know what he would see if he could be brought to understand the nature of those errors and to confront the, frankly, the portal that opens if you walk through a slightly different door than he's been walking through. But, um, you know, it didn't work in one evening. I always wondered if it would, uh, but there is still the possibility that he will
1: have the epiphany that I hope he will have. I, I really don't understand even where we are in this conversation. Okay. You're not getting it. You were found at Evergreen State College. That is a communication to the world that you weren't very good. Yep. And every time I try to say, this is completely wrong. You miss, you don't catch the ball that's being thrown to you, which is you're not understanding what you're up against. He doesn't take you seriously because you don't have a list of publications that speaks to who it is that you actually are or what you've done or where you've been. And as a result, you continue to be the good guy who's very well-spoken, very thoughtful, says very interesting things and constantly gives away power to other people. Mm, I don't think so. There's a question about how to
0: confront the opportunities that you've got the hand you've been dealt. And I think you and I share, a certain delight when we do our homework and we discover something interesting and absolutely nobody else gets it Mm -hmm. that would feel bad to most people because they would feel like what am I doing wrong why does nobody else understand this point to you and me that feels good it is to know that you have achieved something you have discovered something and that nobody else can even recognize. It gives you some sort of sense of how far ahead you might be. The question is what to do with those things. And there, I think the question is, if I went through something with, um, I said something intemperate to the new atheists and suddenly uh, Stephen Pinker, Jerry Coyne, Um, Michael Shermer Richard Dawkins and um, uh, Neil Shubin came at me all at once not on the topic that I had caused offense, on a totally different topic they had picked something off my YouTube channel, Jerry Coyne had claimed to have debunked it he was wrong, but nonetheless it provided fodder for them to attack their point was that I didn't understand natural selection and that to the extent I might believe I knew something that other people didn't know, the right thing to do was to submit it to a journal and go through peer review. I pointed out to them that peer review was not Richard Dawkins style and that he in fact advanced the ball um, for the field substantially, but has barely published a paper. That backed them off that course and they're Tune changed to, well, how about a book then? That's what Dawkins did. And to me, that's a win. The idea, I'm not against peer review. I want peers to review my work, but I don't want it snuffed out in private. And so to the extent that that little battle was the result of them underestimating me and not knowing that something was going to come back that was cogent and responsive to the world as it actually is, And having them back off their position and say, yes, actually, a book would be a fine thing, that was positive movement from my perspective. They underestimated me and they had to back down. So I can't regret that too much. To me, on a different timescale, I believe I'm making progress toward a goal that you and I agree is the right one. But I'm not sure that coming at it guns
1: blazing is the way to go. Well, I'm happy to stop the interview right here and right now, because that's adorable and it's sweet and it's, uh, incredibly patient and it's, um, it's a beautiful sentiment, but I also feel like I sat through all of the wars and battles to get your ideas into the world and I'm not funding that program. Does it sound to you like I'm surrendering? No, it sounds to me like you're boring me. Like this is really uninteresting. Ah. If I think about what actually happened. Yep. This is a mistelling. This is not even honest. Okay. Floor is yours. Okay. I want to talk about something I'm calling, uh, the disc, the distributed idea suppression complex. And it has, nothing to do with Richard Dawkins and peer review and Jerry Coyne and a bunch of other things that almost nobody cares about. It has to do with about a 50 year period in which great ideas got buried no matter where they occurred because great ideas were luck were very likely to be highly disruptive to an institutional order. And between you and your wife and me and my wife, Three of our four theses ran into incredible problems because they were trying to break really new ground. And the amount of delay that you suffered, I mean, you're you're now 50 years old. This is a very late start in a career. You're coming from a very inauspicious place. You've been fitted with a story, which is he's a sweet guy who stood up to a mob and that's his claim to fame. And you're not really understanding that you're not being taken fully seriously as a biologist. In part what Jerry Coyne is saying to you is, Hey, you're really unknown to us. I I'm at Chicago, Richard Dawkins was at Oxford. Um, you know, he was the Simone professor for the, uh, public understanding of sure. science. Right. And the point is you're not part of the super club. Don't, don't get confused. You're just some guy who stood up. Oh, I understand. That's what's being said. Okay. So my point is I don't have time for your fairy tale about a healthy and and kind and sweet. Who said
0: anything about healthy? I'm look, I'm interested in winning for a couple of okay, reasons. But, One, the payload, Yeah, the insight that, opens the portal to the part of biology we don't know because we've had bad Darwinian tools. And for those who heard that as an attack on Darwinism, it is not Darwinism needs fixing and there's nothing wrong with what Darwin contributed. It's what happened after.
1: Will you do me a favor? Yeah. I really, you've got your own podcast. It's called the dark horse, right? The dark horse podcast. I think this is a great place for you to explore, um, gradual change, Incremental progression, uh, turning minds around, opening hearts, all this stuff. This isn't your podcast. This is my podcast, right? But we're talking about my life. Am Am I right? We are talking about your life, but if that's what you want to do, I don't know that I'm that interested in doing what I was going to do, which was to try to get your ideas out into the world curated by somebody who isn't you. The portal is thrilled to welcome back returning sponsor Wine Access. Now, in my family's own tradition, we are more or less mandated once a week to drink. And this gives me the confidence in the era of car service apps to ask the question, is it possible you're actually getting behind in your drinking? Are you having enough belly laughs? Are you breaking out the guitars, breaking into songs? Are you dancing with people you love or at least trading stories to bring you closer together? A great bottle of wine is a way to slow down and get off your phone. It marks time and lets you know something important is happening. Now, our friends at Wine Access have an interesting philosophy. They take the most famous vintages and the most famous vineyards, and they say, can we replace this at a fraction of the cost by sending out our team of geeks to scour the globe for offbeat opportunities? They also send you information to let you know what kind of wine you're getting so you're better educated for the next time you want to repeat the event. With WineAccess.com slash a portal, you're gonna get yourself one hell of a bottle. With WineAccess.com slash portal, so why not order them bottles tonight? You get $100 off and support the show by going to wineaccess.com slash portal. You'll be glad you did You know, one of the things and and by the way, I've had this issue with you Do I take it? We are not not in a podcast at the moment. We are in a podcast Oh, believe me I'm gonna put the hurt on you because you are backing out of your role in history and I'm (sighs) sick of it look one of the things uh, look, I love you like like you were my own brother. Amazing. Okay. It, it is the case that you have always done this and it means that you're not taking your place properly. And I had to go to the extraordinary length of tricking your advisor, Richard Alexander, one of the great evolutionary theorists of our times. Absolutely. Right? One of the absolute tops, member of the National Academy of Sciences, chaired professor at Uh, University of Michigan. Uh, I had to trick him into writing a letter of recommendation for you so that we would have some record as he was getting on in years of who you actually were because I knew that evergreen was not going to be, it's not, it's not part of the game. It's true. Okay. Here's what he had to say about you. Brett Weinstein may well be the brightest graduate student I have ever known. His thesis defense involved only one of his four thesis chapters, and it alone was far more than sufficient as a thesis. I don't know anyone who knows more than Brett about not only a wide variety of topics in biological evolution, but the problems and possibilities of cultural change and the means of bringing people together and solving difficult problems. For 40 years, I held frequent, sometimes almost daily seminars with my doctoral students in evolutionary biology. While he was a student, Brett was a major element in all of those seminars. When he spoke, there was almost always respectful silence, even when he was junior to most of the people involved. Brett's thesis topics are so significant and timely and so well treated on the lifetime patterns of humans and other species, the function and importance of telomeres in explaining lifetimes as hedges against cancer and several other important topics, such as species diversity and sexual selection that he dramatically converted on the spot to reluctant. And by the way, reluctant is British understatement here. I will say mildly and skeptically evolutionist members of the committee. I think that despite his youthfulness in terms of the characteristics I listed earlier, Brett is the best candidate. You were the number one student of Richard Alexander who ended up at the Evergreen State College, which was a giant mistake. And it was always a mistake. You should never have been there. I was completely right. I'm sorry to be overbearing about it, but like how many years did I tell you, you got to get out of that place? Well, look, first of all, Dick was very
0: clear with me about the fact that were he trying to compete in the modern academy he did not believe he would have succeeded and he he was clear about the fact that there was no good solution to the problem so you know I, I can't I can't say that I've ever heard that letter I believe you have quoted
1: parts of it to me before. Yeah, because because you're going to do this thing where you downplay your gift and I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I'm just, I've had it. And part of it, what happened is, is that you are now distorting the history of science. You have a place in the history of science that you are not taking up you are not advocating for, there's something that you don't like about this. And no, no, I don't I don't think this is true. I just think
0: I'm pursuing it, in, maybe I'm pursuing it in a way that it doesn't work out in the end, or maybe I'm pursuing it in
1: a way that it would, maybe there's more than one path. I've been through too much helping you, trying to make this happen, where people become aware of the complex of ideas that you've been pushing out. And my feeling about this is that you maintain this very beautiful, very calm position. And it's enough already. Like you have, you have a story and that story is an explosive story. I I mean, I'm happy to bury this podcast so that nobody ever hears it, but I want to actually explore the truth rather than this extremely good for you, high fiber, uh, you know, low, low sugar bowl of granola. I I just don't think that's where we are. I've been
0: very clear and very public about the fact that I think my entire field is spinning its wheels, that they've gotten caught by a few bad assumptions and that they are spending decades in the weeds for no good reason, that there is a way out that I didn't know what it was for a long time. I did figure out what it was and getting their attention on the question of what they're doing wrong is a Herculean task. I've made that clear. The question is, what is the best use of the opportunity that I've got, the cards that I hold, and we have a difference of opinion about what that might be. And you may be right. I'm not saying you're not right, but I am saying that there's at least a
1: discussion to be had about what the best way to play the Why don't we have that on your podcast? I accept your invitation to come on. This is my podcast. We're going to do it my way. Let's do it your way. All right. I'm the older brother. (laughs) I've noticed.
0: (laughs) I have the ultimate Marshall 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 problem.
1: All right. Um, Brett, this is not the story of your career in your life. What happened is, is that you got stuck at the university of Michigan for a very long period of time because you made people very uncomfortable. What he's saying in that letter of recommendation is, is that you wrote four different theses so far as I can remember. And they were on widely different topics. Furthermore, here's an interesting one. No one that I know of, despite the amount of discussion that's been spilled, um, in ink over evergreen has put you together with the hero of a book called the tapers morning bath that um, appeared years earlier. Like it's odd that it never shows up, right? It never shows up. Yeah. And then you're also the you know recipient of the golden gazelle award. I think of the national organization of women, Um, for standing up to ZBT at the university of Pennsylvania. And you, it got ejected effectively from an Ivy league school due to like threats of physical violence for standing up for um, black women being exploited by white men. I mean, like then you're like the, the uh, field assistant and main student as an undergraduate of another legendary evolutionary theorist, Bob Trivers. And somehow you know, Richard Dawkins is treating you as a guy who isn't really his equal. He's, you're not really a major theorist. You're, you're very confused and you need to learn more about the extended phenotype and all this kind of nonsense. And you're so polite that you're not even, it's just, I don't know. I think you're out to lunch. No offense. I, I get it. I get it. And you know, like I said, you may be right. Okay. I want to talk about the subjects that you're most associated with starting with your thesis and I want to get into the science of it using the portal podcast. If people get left behind, they get left behind. Okay. Okay. Now Dick Alexander is a legend in evolutionary theory because it's very hard to use evolutionary theory to make predictions that can be verified in the world. It's, it's sort of like, this loose amorphous collection of techniques and viewpoints. And people sometimes think it's not even a theory because it, it doesn't seem to be predictive. And then there are a few predictions. So am I right? Darwin started this game off by predicting that there would be a moth with a really long tongue because there was a flower that had a really long distance to go before you could get the nectar out of it. Yeah. He had been sent an orchid by Bateson maybe,
0: um, with a foot long Corolla tube. And he reasoned very straightforwardly that it would make no sense for this plant to have invested in this very long structure if there were not a tongue that could reach down to gather the nectar. And I believe he did not live to see the discovery of that animal. But, I didn't know that. Um, but he uh, he was absolutely correct. There is a moth that has this beautifully long tongue. It's a sphinged hawk moth, one of these sort of hummingbird-esque moths. And uh, anyway, yeah, it's one of the major predictions, demonstrations that evolutionary theory actually can be used to predict phenomena that you haven't been
1: able to observe. Okay. And you know, Darwin famously couldn't, for example, like, I, I don't know how much um, I've talked about this in the open, but, my favorite Darwin book is the one he wrote after uh, Origin of Species, which is on the various contrivances by which British and foreign orchids are fertilized by insects. It makes absolutely no sense as a title because I, I think that's what's so funny about it. And But because orchids are so highly speciated, it turned out to be the perfect place to explore the consequences of evolution. And he couldn't figure out my favorite, I don't know whether it's clade or... Uh, group it's pretty safe. Yeah. Clade of, uh, of orchids, the Ophrys system, which is just unbelievable because it mimics the pollinators, the female of the pollinator species using pheromones and some sort of replica good enough to fool males into copulating with the lower petal of, of an orchid. It's astounding. a
0: 3d replica of the female yeah. that smells like her. And it just so happens that when the male lands on it to copulate, he gets, these pollen packets glued to him, and then he screws up and makes the same mistake at another flower and delivers. Well, he may, he may or may not. Let's put it this oh, way. But only
1: the ones that screw up twice get to get to fertilize.
0: The reason that it gets glued to yeah. him is that it has worked enough times for this strategy to
1: have been so beautifully refined. Right, so Darwin saw that there was this mimicry going on, but he couldn't put it together. He spends pages and pages not getting it. So I think it's it's very funny. So he, he predicts some things, but he can't predict something else in a very closely related system. Okay. Fast forward, Dick Alexander comes out with a crazy prediction, which I still don't fully, I mean, it's just amazing that he made it where he says, I bet that you will find the kind of behavior we associate with wasps and bees, which is in this clade called hymenoptera and ants of eusocial um, breeding patterns and, and organization, but in mammals that will live underground. So, I think the way this
0: story actually worked, he didn't say you will find it. Or you could find it. What he said is, in principle, there's no reason that a eusocial uh, animal has to be an insect. That in fact, you could get such a thing in a mammal. And then he predicted,
1: I forget how many characteristics there were, but he named some large... There's something funny about the system of ants, bees, wasps, which is that they've got this very strange haplodiploid Chromosomal characteristic. Do you want to say a word about that because that makes the prediction more more sure
0: so It has long been understood that uh, the hymenoptera behave in this incredibly Cooperative fashion in which effectively all of the workers of the colony forgo reproduction in order to advance the reproductive interests of the queen and it was late discovered that actually their genetic system is unlike our genetic system and that males have basically half a full complement of genes. They have enough genes to function, but they have half the female complement of genes. And for reasons that are mathematically slightly complicated and require a chalkboard, the uh, females are more closely related to the Daughters produced by their mother than they would be to their own offspring. They're three quarters relatives to her offspring and they would be 50% relatives to their own offspring. Spot on. So they are actually evolutionarily favored by very standard mechanisms. Once you understand the crazy genetics underlying the thing, they are favored to engage in behavior where they forgo reproducing and foster. So that
1: once you understand the chromosomal difference of this system, it is far less surprising that it would behave as a loosely coupled in some way don't over, don't overreact hu- unified organism, which is distributed that there is a way in which, and there are ways in which the hive behaves as a super organism and there are ways in which it does not. Yeah. Well, all I want to say is I'm not sure how
0: clear we have the story with respect to what precedes what it's completely plausible sure, sure, sure. that the behavior precedes the evolution of the genetic system right and i actually frankly just don't know where that research stands at the moment we have found many other insect systems that uh, have various versions of this interestingly though the termites are not hymenopteran right and the termites engage in this behavior the and her- they, termites
1: are eusocial but they're not
0: haplodiploid. they're eusocial they behave very much like ants okay Um, But they don't have the strange genetic system, proving that the the behavior can evolve even in the absence of this
1: genetic system. Well, the reason I bring this up is that if you if you look at, for example, Prince Peter Kropotkin, the great anarchist theorist, he was obsessed by finding analogs in nature of preferred human structures. And so it's very simple to say, why can't we work together the way an ant colony all works together? And then there's a counter to that, which is, well, they have different chromosomal structures. And then you say, well, but yes, but that's a kind of a cheap way of achieving eusociality. There are other ways of, so we through this crazy kind of um, investigation, we get to Dick Alexander who, and I think you're quite, quite correct, says, there is nothing prohibiting us from finding a mammalian species that exhibits ant and wasp like behavior. And it would have, it would be likely to have these characteristics. It would live underground in a... Yeah.
0: Underground, I believe eating tubers was, was on the thing. It was a crazy list of things. And you know, my understanding from, from Dick, Dick is now unfortunately dead. He died a couple of years ago, but, um, My understanding from him was that he didn't actually expect to find such an animal. He was speaking very abstractly, just completely theoretically. And at the point that he unleashed this idea, it may even have been in a talk rather than a paper. The information made it back to him. Actually, what about naked mole rats? They match your characteristics and study reveals then that actually they are eusocial. They behave very much like ants, bees, wasps, termites, etc. And this is like one of the great moments in modern science. I really think it is. It's it's certainly the moment that people who know who Dick Alexander was um, reference as sort of the high watermark because it's, it's comprehensible. You know, Dick did a lot of things. He was very interested in people and other things. But this particular demonstration was so it would be impossible to have predicted such a thing and have gotten lucky. He had to have understood some things that were extremely deep in order for that to have worked out. And so, yeah, it's really, I I don't know of another example in, in, uh, in evolutionary theory of a prediction that clean of something that obscure.
1: I know one. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I once heard a story about, uh, a graduate student who predicted that the breeding protocols of laboratory rodents would compromise the laboratory system uh, in terms of its relationship to so-called wild type versions of the same species. So you have the bred rodents and you have the wild rodents and that they would be distinguished. By virtue of the fact that the non-coding uh, nucleotide sequence at the end of the chromosome, known as telomeres, would be wildly different in length if the prediction were true from pure evolutionary theory. Wild,
0: wow. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That story—it it didn't happen exactly the way you said it, but you know, it's been a lot of years and it takes well, a second to get back there. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's you—you you did that. Yeah, I did that. And that story unfortunately has not really been told. And it is in some sense, your central origin story as a, as a biologist. It's a pretty good one. And it, it
0: definitely changed the way
1: I saw myself in a way that has been very productive. Okay. I want you to talk to me about that story and I will, f- I, because I lived it with you, um, I know that it happened and I know that it got buried. And I know that it's part of what I'm calling the distributed idea suppression complex, because quite frankly, you were not the only person who was a part of the story and the story had to die because it said something, which is that the power of your theory was sufficient to predict from first principles, a manifestly observed and surprising result with in molecular biology from pure evolutionary principles. All right. I'll try to do a short version of it. You know, this is long form podcasting and you tell however long the story is. I guarantee you when people finally figure out that it may be that the rodents that we've used to test drugs on, let's say might be compromised and compromised in a way that would be potentially extra um, permitting of uh, potential toxins. Uh, in the form of pharmaceuticals, I think that it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be repay. The, it's going to repay the study that it will take to understand the story. The floor is yours. All right.
0: So um, let
1: me just set the stage a little bit. Evolutionary biology. But has, do me a favor. Yeah. I. You can get into a very patient, careful pedagogical mode. This is an exciting story. Tell it the way it actually
0: occurred. I'm, I'm going to tell it the way it actually occurred. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to be careful. I'm going to try not to be. Uh... There are parts of it that were for a very long time kind of emotionally fraught. But anyway, I, I think I think I remember it well enough um, to do a a sparse but complete version. Okay. Evolutionary biology has long been biased in the direction of abstraction um, rather than thinking about mechanism. That is to say. We deal in the phenomenology of things. We talk about gross patterns that we see in nature rather than talking about the fine detail of what drives them. That has been changing in recent decades, but it has a long history and it comes from a very mundane place. That mundane place is that we just haven't had the tools to look, for example, inside of cells and we haven't been able to read genomes. You know, we could have been able to read a gene here and there at great expense, but the ability to peer into genomes is pretty new. The ability to peer into these molecular pathways is pretty new. So anyway, there's a historical bias in evolutionary biology against mechanism and in the direction of phenomenology. I have never been particularly fond of that bias. I've always been interested in mechanism. I'm interested in the phenomenology too, but I've always kept my foot in the door with respect to mechanism. And as an, as a, uh, undergraduate, I took lots of mechanism classes. I took a development class. At the time, developmental biology was, in my opinion, a bit stuck. It is now unstuck in a very dramatic way. Um, But anyway, I took a developmental biology class. I took some immunology or immunobiology. And anyway, I was armed with these things in an environment in evolutionary biology where most people were not. Most people were in the phenomenology. And one day I happened to be in a seminar Dick Alexander was running a seminar for graduate students, and a student was there who was very out of place. He was studying cancer, and he, on a lark, decided to take an evolution seminar that looked good to him in the catalog. And it wasn't right for him, and he gave a talk at some point. And his talk was on his work with cancer. And frankly, because all the other people in the room were evolutionarily oriented, nobody was really tracking what he was saying. But what he said struck me like a bolt of lightning. He said that in the realm of cancer research, people were looking at telomeres, which are these repetitive sequences at the ends of chromosomes. And they were toying with the possibility that the fact that these telomeres shorten every time a cell divides, that that is providing a resistance to tumor formation. Very straightforward.
1: Counter counts down and that would Prevents. So let's just for, for the audience that maybe needs a tiny refresher, we are taught in general that DNA is a string of letters called nucleotides, uh, A C T and G. And that in general, um, three of those that are, uh, adjacent to each other, uh, form words called codons and for every word, there is an amino acid or an instruction to stop coding for amino acids. So this is the instruction tape that tells us how to string together amino acids into proteins to make machines, molecular machines. This is some weird different thing where the region of DNA could be interpreted as coding for a protein, but in fact might be instead just counting how many nucleotides are at the end so it it comes across as a counter it's a little better it was known not to be a coding sequence it wasn't a useful
0: sequence so what you had is a bunch of dna at the ends of chromosomes that's just repetitive and the length of the number of repeats varies and the number of repeats correlates with basically how many times the cell can divide before it refuses this being interpreted as a cancer prevention thing made perfect sense. But the reason it struck me like a bolt of lightning was that I was well aware of the existence of tumors and their implication in something entirely different. What they had been implicated in as far as I was aware, was something called hay flick limits, which were the tendency of perfectly healthy, happy cells to grow and grow and grow and grow in a petri dish until they hit some number of divisions and then to stop without apparent dysfunction. So So this was The theory of Leonard Hayflick. Yep. It was the discovery of Leonard Hayflick who basically overturned the prior wisdom about cells, which was that they would grow indefinitely as long as you kept feeding them and making an environment that was conducive to division. So I don't exactly know why that result had been misunderstood at first. Maybe somebody had a cancerous cell line and so they got the wrong idea and it just spread. But Hayflick checked it and it turned out to be false. It turned out there was a number of cell divisions that healthy cells would go through and then they'd stop. The mechanism was not obvious to Hayflick, but later it became clearer and clearer that the mechanism was these sequences at the ends of chromosomes which shorten each time the cell divides. And the implication was that potentially this was a cause of what we call senescence, what in common parlance would often be called aging the tendency to grow feeble and inefficient with age. If your cells are each in a cell line and that line has a fixed number of times that it can replace itself before it has to stop, then at some point your repair program starts to fail. And that repair program failing across the body looks like what you would expect aging. Aging follows the pattern you would expect if cell lines one by one stopped being
1: able to replace themselves. So we know that there's a special sort of, uh, I don't want to call it cell line because you keep correcting me for every tiny mistake I make uh, in speech. But if we divide our our body into two kinds of cells, soma and germ, where germ lines are that which has a hope of immortality through reproduction, then it's the somatic cells that have finite um, limits on their ability to undergo um mitosis and cellular repair and and, and whatnot
0: yep and the germline can't because if it did you your lineage would go extinct as a result of small small addendum small addendum so it's the soma the parts of your body that don't go on to produce babies um that have this effect the reason it struck me like a bolt of lightning was that i was aware of another very elegant piece of research done by a guy named george williams George Williams had finally... One of the the greatest of modern evolutionary... One of the the greatest modern evolutionary biologists. I actually knew him a bit too. He is also now gone, unfortunately. But um, George Williams had laid out in a beautifully elegant paper the evolutionary theory of senescence. It is an absolutely elegant argument that says that in a lifetime um, there are... Well, let's start somewhere else creature is built of parts and traits. Um, It has a relatively small genome and a relatively high complexity. At the time it was thought there might be a hundred thousand genes or something, and you have maybe 30 trillion cells with a ton of complexity in order to get that small number of genes to dictate how to produce a, a creature that complex, the, Genes are doing multiple things. William's point was when a gene has multiple effects, what we call a pleiotropy, those effects may be good or bad. If effects are good early in life. By good we mean contributing to fitness. Fitness enhancing traits at some cost late in life. Then they will tend to be accumulated by selection. And the reason for that is because well, there are two ways to think of it, really. If a trait occurs, if a negative trait occurs very late in life, then a large number of individuals who have the gene for that trait will not live long enough to experience the harm. So if it came bound to a positive thing early in life and you're dead before the late-life harm accrues, you got away with it, right? So William's point was, and he was building on earlier work of Medawar, but let's skip that for the moment. His point was, because of trade-offs, you will have lots of traits that are good early and bad late. Selection sees the early traits much more clearly than it sees the late traits, and it prioritizes them because of the discounting that arises because so many individuals aren't around to experience the late life harm, and if they are around to experience the late life harm, a lot of their reproduction is behind them anyway. So they count less. Selection counts more early in life, and this Timer starts at the moment of first reproduction, the usual moment of first reproduction for your species. So this is a beautiful hypothesis and it was beautifully uh, articulated with many predictions, which is the way really good work is done. And we knew at the point that I was, entering graduate school. We knew that the, the the hypothesis was right. It was a theory. And the reason that we knew it was so right. the hypothesis is the antagonistic pleiotropy hypothesis. The antagonistic pleiotropy hypothesis for senescence. We knew that it was right because it predicted so many phenomena in nature that we could readily go out and measure. And this is again, where the phenomenology versus mechanism comes in. Okay. We know that creatures that are poisonous or have a shell that protects them or can fly away from danger are disproportionately long lived for their size. Small creatures tend to live shorter lives than, uh, than large creatures. But if you can fly, then you're off the line of the other creatures of your size. So for example, they're small bats who have been recovered uh, after 30 years in the wild. So creatures that have special protections have disproportionate longevity. This matches William's uh, hypothesis because it is (coughs) their ability to fly away from danger that makes the uh, likelihood of their experiencing late life costs go up. So selection sees their late life more easily than it sees
1: a small creature. (coughs) I just want to say something. Yeah. This is a podcast. It's a unusual podcast and we can talk science and I'm thrilled, but we always have our colleagues in our minds when we're talking to a general audience and the colleagues are always in a gotcha mode. Well, you forgot about this and you didn't mention that I'm even interjecting little bits because I want to make sure that you're immunized from all the bullshit Yep. Um, that the academic, so I just want to make a general statement, which is we can come back and get into any level of specificity that somebody wants to, if they want to take you down, I don't care. What I'd love to do is to tell the story with enough punch that Good. people understand what happened. So we're about to jump into the, let's do the it. meat of the matter. The theory of
0: antagonistic pleiotropy was well established, but In four decades of research on the genome, nobody had found a gene that matched it. So that we knew that this explanation was right, but we couldn't find the genes that caused it. The mechanism was missing. So
1: anyway. Does that mean to be a gene it has to be protein coding?
0: Yeah. Anyway, I uh knew this as sort of I was well familiar with William's paper. At the point that I saw this talk on cancer, and I knew already about the question of senescence, everything came together. This was obviously the answer where the missing pleiotropy was. Well, the missing pleiotropy had to do with a telomere, which wasn't exactly a gene. It was genetic. It was DNA, but it wasn't a gene, but it was perfectly capable of producing exactly the effects that we see in senescence across the body tissue. So a counter, not a protein could be the answer. Right now I saw this instantly at the point I heard this talk. I raised my hand and I tried to articulate what was so obvious in that moment. And I couldn't compel a single person in the room. They couldn't even understand what I was trying to say. And that is bizarre. It was bizarre. I mean, Dick was in the room and you know, Dick was
1: very broad minded and uh, I just couldn't make it clear. Let me just interject something. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but my impression of it is that it was a very simple idea attended to by an outrageous amount of irrelevant complexity that had to be very carefully pried off of the central idea. Yeah, I think, I think that's well, well said. So anyway, I left the
0: room feeling like I had just glimpsed something so important and, you know, I wondered, could it be right? And I started to just do the first bit of library research to
1: figure out whether somebody else knew what I knew or, So I'm not even sure that you fully said it. I want to make sure that I'm even clear on it. And I'm going to, I think I'm right, but correct me if I'm wrong. What you're saying is what if the Hayflick limit is a protection against dying from immortality at a cytological level that some cell gets a dream of immortality that it shouldn't have because let's say it's a somatic cell. And it says, okay, I just want to keep dividing and dividing and dividing. Nature knows how to do this. And that immortality, which sounds good at first is actually called cancer. Yeah. And so in computer science, we would say, okay, you've introduced a recursion limit into a while loop or a for loop to make sure that you don't have a resource leak, which is what a tumor is. Yeah. So let me say it this way. If you have a damage to
0: a tissue cut on your arm or something, cells on both sides of that cut suddenly become aware that there is a problem, a gap, because they can't hear a neighbor on one side of them. And their natural reaction is to start growing into the gap until they can hear a neighbor, which is the sign to stop. If you imagine that something like that is occurring in every tissue or almost every tissue, the problem is that that means that every tissue in your body for which that story is about right is in danger of having damage from radiation or whatever, turn it deaf to its neighbors. A single cell that has turned deaf to its neighbors will suddenly start replicating. And if it is deaf to its neighbors, then there's no message that it's going to hear that's going to tell it to stop. So that thing, imagine any cell in your body just taking off and growing and growing and growing.
1: Okay. This is terrifying. What you're saying to me is is that if I'm comprised of let's say 30 trillion cells and I view them as each, let's say s- subroutines, any subroutine that is not denucleated, right? Like you, this wouldn't happen in the, um, in the lens of your eye because the, the nucleus has been removed, but a- any other reasonable cell is potentially your assassin because it's mitosis process might completely uh, go rogue. It can run away.
0: Okay. And so, The rather elegant and very simple idea is that there would be a hard limit so that any cell that had become damaged so it started down this path
1: would just simply run into the number of cell divisions it was allowed in a lifetime and it would stop. So like the moles on my face that some of my less couth uh, commenters love to talk about. Yep. Uh, are effectively attempts to kill me that may have stopped and that the perimeter where they stop is where the Hayflick limit took over and said this, the cell line must die so that the patient will live. Yeah. The name I gave them was proto tumor. And the
0: idea is a proto tumor is a patch of cells arrested at their Hayflick limit um, because they had become unregulated. If you go to the dermatologist and you say, what do I look for? you know, they tell you certain things to look for. So a round patch of cells that suddenly becomes irregular in shape. Well, that's what would happen if you took one of those cells and gave it a second mutation and it started growing again. Got it. Right. So anyway, the idea that a limit on cellular reproduction yep. is adaptive to protect you from cancer.
1: is a little bit of a mind bender because what you're telling me is is that I've got to avoid immortality, which can kill me and that the solution to not dying is death. Yes. And that
0: what selection does is it balances these two competing forces to give you as much vigor and
1: longevity as it can. So all of the other diseases and insults and things that I can die from sort of start to fade away. And at at the complete core of biology in this theory, there are two things that I can't get away from. One of which is death by immortality. And the other one is death by recursion limit. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's a very elegant, thing. And now the problem is, is that there's all this weird attendant complexity that you had to deal with. So it's right. like stem cells versus germ versus. So when I went into the literature, what I
0: found was that people had played around in the neighborhood, but that there was a particular fact which blocked every attempt to make sense of what was going on. And the fact was that rodents were understood to have ultra long hyper variable telomeres and I didn't know what that meant at first, but the more I looked into this possibility, the more I realized that dozens of long standing problems would be solved if my hypothesis was true, but that my hypothesis couldn't be true because basically mice have long telomeres and short lives. Why is that? And I banged my head on the table for couple weeks trying to figure out what was going on yes maybe even literally on on occasion but um the question was i i began to wonder if there was something wrong with the idea that mice had long telomeres sometimes like in hayflick's case uh it turned out that a bunch of people were copying some wrong result in it so it seemed like a lot of people had seen it but only one hand i checked was it true that um there was something that everybody was parroting one study that said mice had long telomeres. And right. It turns out lots of people had tested it. Mice have long telomeres, like 10 times the length of human telomeres. It just didn't fit. So finally, it, it occurred to me that it was possible that what was going on, I, I discovered something in trying to figure out what they meant by mice, right? My, there's a lot of species of mice, but all the mice that we use in the lab with rare exception are from one genus and often from a particular target so species. You,
1: you were focused, if I recall correctly, on Muspritis no, no, Musculus, Musmusculus? musculus, mus which musculus. is the
0: common one. Yeah. What shocked me was that it turned out all the mus musculus that were being used in labs across the country, and in many cases, farther afield than that, were coming from one place, which I had no idea. There was one. I remember getting a phone call when you said, what do you know about? The Jack's lab. The Jack's lab in Bar Harbor, Maine, right? They seem to be the source of everybody's mice. And so it began to be, uh, it was a possibility I could not shut down in my mind that there was something about what was going on at the Jack's lab that had resulted in the mice that were being sent out to all these other labs. As if they were representative animals. Right. These are model organisms. People were just using mice because mice were a convenient mammal, but they're all coming from one place and it began to occur to me that that one place was not just a source of mice in the sense that we might think it, it was actually a selective environment that was impacting those mice. And when I dug deeper, it turned out that the mice had all, they were descendants of a long lineage that had lived in captivity under conditions at the Jack's lab. And at some point, I realized that the most likely thing going on was that there was something about this environment that had wildly elongated the telomeres of these mice and that was simultaneously an unbelievable idea but the only one i could think of that made sense of everything i had seen and so well
1: it's unbelievable because the consequences i mean look look, i have not even heard whether anyone has said yeah we we did that we screwed that up but it is like your your model your, your favorite model organism for mammalian trials being screwed up by a central facility because also there's this weird thing where medical people very often stop taking into account evolutionary theory because they treat that as well. That's that class I took in college or the beginning of graduate school. Right? So
0: I began to focus on this question and I did something that was the right thing to do, but I did it in a way I will forever regret. I found somebody, who was represented in the literature, who I regarded as very well versed. They made sense to me, their papers. Her name was Carol Grider. Carol Grider is now a Nobel laureate. She was not at the time. She was the uh, co discoverer of the enzyme telomerase, which is the enzyme that elongates telomeres um,
1: when that occurs. With the famous. Uh, in- Co-Nobel uh, recipient, uh, she was the student of Elizabeth Blackburn. Elizabeth Blackburn, exactly. She was her student, and they shared the Nobel
0: Prize with uh, Shostak. Um, in any case, her work seemed good to me. I called her up cold. You know, I went into the insect division uh, office, and I sat down at the phone. And I called her. I said, Carol, you don't know me. I'm a graduate student at Michigan. I'm an evolutionary biologist. I'm racking my brains trying to understand something. Can you tell me, is it possible that mice don't have ultra long telomeres, that it's only laboratory mice that do? And she said, huh, that's really interesting. I'm pretty sure that mice have long telomeres universally, but it is odd that if you order Mus spritus instead of Mus musculus and you order from European suppliers, the lengths are very different than what you get if you order Mus musculus from the Jackson i said whoa and she said yeah that's really interesting and then she said um i I can't remember if it was the same phone call or if we had a second phone call but she said she was going to put her student her graduate student mike Heeman, who i think is now at mit on the project and he was going to do a little work to figure out whether there was anything to this and uh mike did some work they sourced some different strains of mice that were they were actually not wild mice My, wild mice would have been the right test but she couldn't get wild mice for obvious she reasons never into the woods. right exactly and so she got several different strains of mice that had just been in captivity much less time she actually got one strain of mice that was treated very differently in captivity but never mind she put her graduate student on it and he measured their telomere lengths and i get this excited email mike heeman sends me an email email that says Effectively, whoa, the hypothesis is true. Mice have short (laughs) telomeres,
1: right? Now. I'm sorry, this is like as close to a whodunit discovery, j'accuse, the mice, you know, I I remember you were over the moon. I still am. I still can look at this email and it is the moment at
0: which I realize, A, there's no way I'm kidding myself about how well I understand this. Right. Right? That prediction How old are you?
1: Now or no, then? No, 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 When you get this email.
0: When I got that email, I was, uh, it was 1999, 98, something like that.
1: Okay. So, over 20 years ago. Yeah. So, I get this email, and... Um, By the way, that puts you at about 30. You're at the beginning of your career, and you, in this story, you've just predicted that it's a stunning
0: coup for a graduate student and it wasn't in my advisor's wheelhouse. So it was clearly my own work. And right. my Dick was
1: great about not okay. Either those you things, are but, a dirty dog liar and right. I was there at the time. Yeah. Or, or so we're both dirty dog liars about right. this particular story or, or one of the great moments in evolutionary theory, which is, and let me just, curate this because i'm not a biologist but i think i can more or less get this because it's a breeding protocol that is the alteration in the evolutionary landscape for these laboratory mice and because it's acting on a non-protein coding region the adaptation to a change in the breeding protocol can be extremely rapid. It doesn't have to undergo some sort of completely crazy, um, typical Darwinian story about random mutation and some of them being retained and others being rejected. It's, it's even better uh, than that.
0: The creatures are presumably, so we haven't gotten to what the breeding protocol has to do with this, but the creatures are built in some sense, to detect how dangerous their environment is. And to the extent that the level of extrinsic danger changes, their telomeres respond quickly so that they are better adapted to the environment. So they're built to detect the environment. And then what is actually a strict matter of market forces. Okay, so there are no predators in this environment.
1: No predators in this environment. And we're not killing them particularly early based on their skills. So environmental insult is, is sort of absent. Environmental insult is more or less absent. What we are doing is imposing an
0: economic rule on breeding so that we can maximize the rate at which we turn mouse chow into mice, which is obviously economically the right thing to do if you're selling mice to all these labs. You right. want to produce as many mice as cheaply as possible. So producing as many mice as cheaply- as genius of the market. <laughs> it's the genius of the market. There you go. So. In order to produce as many mice as cheaply as possible, what you do is you don't breed animals past eight months. They breed faster when they're younger because of senescence. And so you don't breed older mice. You throw them out and you replace them with younger mice who breed faster. What that effectively did was it eliminated the selection against cancer. And it turbocharged the selection in favor
1: of youthful vigor. Well, let me see if I get this. In general almost all cancer, like cancer of the germ line happens early in life, but all the other cancer in general is much more common later in life. I got to pause. I realized
0: I forgot to tell you one thing Carol told me in my first phone call with sure. her that's vital. In addition to telling me that there was something funny about muspritis, she told me that consistent with the hypothesis that I was conveying to her that all mice die of cancer, she said, if you let them live long enough and then you do the necropsy, you you find cancer of one kind or another. And that was perfectly consistent because they had these wildly long telomeres and no cancer protection. That would be the prediction now, of And that's hypothesis. an
1: extrapolation. It's, it's not really all mice. It's all mice that we see in the lab, which happens to be the mice that are ordered. Right. She was still speaking from the mindset of somebody
0: who thought that the mice she was getting in the mail the representative. were representative of mice in the wild. Got it. Okay. So let me clear up why the breeding protocol. And I should say that it is the breeding protocol that is causing this. That part, I would say, is still a hypothesis. It has not been directly tested by anybody. But what I would say is many hypotheses were tested in the aftermath of the discovery that that lab mice have bizarrely long telomeres and wild mice don't. And no other hypothesis has stood up to scrutiny. So it is the last hypothesis standing, and I am all but certain that it will turn out to be true. Yeah. The reason that the breeding protocol has this weird effect is that when you throw out the mice at eight months of age, you eliminate selection against cancer, you turbocharge selection in favor of. So when you throw out the mice for breeding purposes at eight months of right. Age. okay when you throw them out for breeding purposes at eight months of age, you are increasing the importance of their early life breeding, and you are discounting anything related to their ability to fend off cancer because they don't live long enough in that period of time to get cancers that kill them. And so what has happened, according to this hypothesis, is that the mice that have longer telomeres have driven out the other animals from the colony. The trait of having long telomeres has swept through the colony and the telomeres have been elongated to an absurd degree, creating animals that do all die of cancer. And interestingly enough, another thing that's evident from the literature is that if you look at their tissues, their tissues do not age in the way that a normal mammals tissues age, they remain young.
1: Well, so so there's one aspect of aging, but that there's a a far darker uh, interpretation of what you've just said. If I'm understanding it, correct me, I've never taken a class in biology, but I lived this adventure with you. Those tissue, have at a histological level, the level uh, of how cells are organized, the possibility of radical histological repair. Yes.
0: Radical, effectively indefinite capacity to repair, which is going to come back in the story in the worst possible way. So
1: Dude, this is like a, t- I mean, I just forget how great of a.
0: Me too. I go years sometimes without, without thinking telling the story deeply about it. All right. Yeah. Um. Okay. So the story now gets kind of ugly. Um. I recognize I've got all the pieces of the puzzle necessary to tell the story correctly. I have taken on a co-author. We've found the literature necessary to do it in proper scientific form. This came from you, but I want to mention your co-author's name. Yeah, Debbie Sezick. Okay. Um, and Debbie was an excellent co-author, strong contributor to the paper. Anyway, we put together over the course of a year, I took a break from effectively my real dissertation work and wrote a paper. Dick thought
1: it was a fantastic paper. He was blown away by it. Well, I remember the revisions and I remember this was like, I mean, if I think about what's on the line, like this combines one of these freak situations where you're using evolutionary theory to to predict something and in this case, it's at the level of molecular biology. So with Darwin's orchid, it's a tongue, and with Dick's thing, it's behavior in naked mole rats. This thing is actually at a molecular level, yeah. and it couldn't be more important if mice are going to be the major system in which we are going to test drugs, which are highly sensitive to what? Histological repair. Yep, it's, it's so
0: profound on several different levels that, I'm super energized about getting this into the world. I'm, it's transformative. Dick looks at the paper. He says, this is fantastic. He puts me through the ringer to get it really tight. We get it tight. We send it to George Williams, the, the the, the number one guy in the world, the number one senescence guy at the evolutionary level in the world. And he writes a beautiful recommendation letter for this piece. We're going to send it to nature. George Williams tells nature, you need to take this piece very seriously. We send it to nature and they send it back with one of their absurd form letters that says that the nature of the article is such that it's probably not limited interest interest to their (laughs) readers. And we're, you know, I mean, we had a good laugh about that. You know, it's cancer, it's
1: senescence, it's, 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 uh, it's so bad. Like this is a response that indicates either malfeasance or an Eliza program, or, or or the the janitor ended up responding who didn't know any biology. Something it's,
0: it's the craziest thing, and you know the cherry on top is that they're turning down George Williams' recommendation. Like, how great? Do they know who he is? Like, what? Where? What, is, in what? On what planet? On what planet do you turn down his recommendation to look at something about senescence? So anyway, um. I get back this rejection, and I have purposefully not shown Carol Greider the paper in preparation, which I am afraid she might have read some way. The reason I didn't show it to her was because I wanted to preserve her uh, independence as a reviewer for the paper. I was hoping, because I still thought she was an ally of mine, I was hoping that nature would send it to her to review, and that she would look favorably on it, Especially since it was, you know,
1: very clear that she, she had done. It was her lab, that right? Made, it that, was made the confirmation.
0: Yeah, and uh, I. Oh, I. Another thing I forgot. I asked her at some point something that now rings in my ears. I asked her, Carol, you've now got this uh, result about no, actually, lab lab mice have long telomeres, but wild mice have short telomeres. That's a big result. It's a hell of a Delta. Where are you going to publish it so that I can cite it in my paper, which is the natural thing to do. And she says, we're not going to publish it. We're going to keep the information in house. That was her phrase. I was too young to understand what the hell she
1: was talking about. I'll be honest. I'm 54 and I don't quite understand it myself. Well, it's so heartbreaking. What she has effectively done is
0: decided I could publish this result and then everyone would have huge, it huge but then i'm on a level playing field with everybody else if i don't publish this result i have a stream of papers i can get at then i can start predicting other results nobody will know how i am doing that thing i will look like a super genius and so holding it in-house is a mechanism for
1: a whole slew of papers. To be to be 100, you can afford to bend over backwards and not make inferences. Let's say the following. Holding it in-house is a seemingly inexplicable decision in science, but for, for the fact that it fits at least one story of this kind, which is that it is consistent with wishing to publish a stream rather than the source of the information that would allow you. So you can either do one discovery or you can do a stream of predictions. And that makes a certain amount of sense given the ruthlessly competitive, um, grant winning, uh, environment. And we don't know exactly what happened, but there is no world that I know of in which you you're allowed to hold back that kind of information because in part of what's on the line right so i mean this is not just a question of academic interest no because these mice are used for medical testing
0: not even that it's medical testing but it's also all of the science relative at least to cancer senescence wound healing all of the science that is stacked right. on these mice right. that is contingent on their function relative to their telomeres yeah. is all compromised right you're letting year after okay. year of this stuff accumulate it, it, it's malpractice at an incredible level so i don't know that she has turned on me but i call her up and i say uh carol we are stunned to find that our paper was turned away without review from nature, without review, without review. We need your help. Can I send you the paper and, uh, have you look at it? And she says, yes. And I send her the paper and she sends back the paper with an unbelievable number of intense criticisms that are not sensible. She, Pans the paper, does not believe a Do word. We still it. have. The I copy. have that paper. I have that paper with her handwriting. I believe I also have the FedEx envelope in which she sent it to me. But um, she hates the paper, and I have now forgotten a bit of the sequence. But as I am um, attempting to fix this up for another journal. Oh, here's uh, sorry. I, I hate to tangle You're, this story, but it's no, important but to haven't, get it right. I have
1: told this in enough. I haven't enough. told it in a very
0: long time. After the rejection from nature, after Carol has seen the paper and said it's cruddy, I get a letter I don't expect from a journal. I don't, I know it exists, but I'm not super familiar with it. Experimental like gerontology. European. Experimental gerontology yeah. says, um, we are the editors of experimental gerontology. We have heard a rumor of your work. We're very interested. Would you be willing to submit a version to our journal? And, oh, this is this is happening prior
1: to uh, Kara looking at my paper and panning. Okay. Um, so the only way they would have known about this would have been from nature or from Dick, or we don't I'm, even know. I'm
0: pretty sure I know based on what they, again, I was too young to sort out really what they were saying, but, they indicate that they're fans of antagonistic pleiotropy, right? So what happened was George Williams, having heard that that, that it got rejected, contacted some friends of his and was like, you should really take a look at this. Um, So I, uh, I begin the process of revising it. Um, I've shown it to Carol. She's panned it. I send the revised version to experimental gerontology. They send it out for review. As you know, review is blind. You don't know who your reviewers are, but you can often tell who they are. It's not as obscure depending. If it's a small field. Yeah. So they read the acknowledgements of my paper, which are now on alert about Carol. I have to thank her in the paper for the work she did, but I'm now on alert that she's gone strange on the subject matter of this paper. And so I've broken her out separately in the acknowledgements. I don't want to be as gracious to her because she's being, uh, hostile to me, but I don't want to not acknowledge her. So I acknowledge her separately. Experimental gerontology. Then I am, 99% 99% sure, sends the paper to her as the reviewer. She pans it. Absolutely brutal critiques, just pages and pages and pages of them. They are not high quality critiques. I could go through every single one Don't of them. Don't bother, this is a podcast. Just No, I can't do it here, but I could have then. No, okay. But I didn't know what to do because she was in line for a Nobel prize. That was well understood. I didn't want to accuse a leading light of the field of, okay, this not- is
1: exactly why I got angry at, you at the beginning of the podcast. You moron. No, no offense. You were in line for a Nobel prize. You didn't, I mean, I'm sorry. There, there is an aspect of this about giving away your power. Before you've even accumulated, you don't
0: even have a PhD at the time. I'm just saying, at the time, if you mentioned her name, people would say, oh yeah, her Nobel Prize is one of these years, right? So my point was, I was in the awkward position. I didn't understand what I was supposed to do. Uh, I didn't want to send back a review that said, I don't know who the person is who reviewed this, but they don't understand the material and all of their critiques suck because
1: I didn't want to accuse somebody who was that powerful of not getting it. I mean, here's the problem. What do you do? You don't actually have evidence in the hard form where like you have got videotape, but on the other hand, these are small worlds. This, all of this is preposterous. Right? So I sit on the review for too long, not knowing what, well, you don't know how to, I don't know how to handle it. I'm sorry, but like I have no advisor. Your advisor was not equipped for the modern era. He wasn't equipped for the
0: modern era. He wasn't equipped for molecular biology. That's true. I finally settle on a, a strategy that I can live with. And I send back a note, I send back the review and my note says, I don't know why, but the, this entire list of critiques is not high quality. If you would like to point me to any of the critiques in this list that you would like me to address, I am more than happy to do it, but I don't think it makes sense to address the entire list. And as I recall it, I hit send on the email. And within minutes, maybe it was an hour, I got back a response, your paper has been accepted for publication,
1: which blew me away because I... It makes I, no sense according to
0: regular protocols. Right. It makes no sense because clearly yeah. they're supposed to send it out for review. The reviewer supposed to say whether it's supposed to get published. The yeah. reviewer said it shouldn't be published. I said, I refuse to address these critiques unless you ask me to, the editors have overridden the reviewer. They understood the reviews were cruddy. They needed me to say that in order to justify the move that they wanted to make. They knew the paper was good and the the review was crap. So they effectively overrode normal peer review.
1: Was my paper peer reviewed? Well, it was by the editors who were experts. Uh, But but let me jump in. Peer review is a cancer from outer space. It came from the biomedical community. It invaded science. Um, the old system, because I have to say this because many people who are now professional scientists have an idea that peer review has always been in our literature and it absolutely motherfucking has not. Right. Okay. Used to be that the editor of a journal took responsibility for the quality of the journal, which is why we had things like nature crop up in the first place because they had courageous, knowledgeable, forward thinking editors And so I just want to be very clear because there is a mind virus out there that says peer review is the sine qua non of scientific excellence, yada, 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 bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. And if you don't believe me, go back and learn that this is a recent invasive problem in the sciences. Recent invasive problem that has no justification for existing in light of the fact. not, Not only does it have no justification for existing. When Watson and Crick did the double helix, and this is the cleanest example we have, the paper was agreed should not be sent out for review because anyone who was competent would understand immediately what its implications were. There are reasons that great work cannot be peer reviewed. Furthermore, you have entire fields that are existing now with electronic archives that are not peer reviewed. Peer review is not peer review. It sounds like peer review. It is peer injunction. It is the ability for your peers to keep the world from learning about your work. Keep the world from learning about your work because peer review is what happens. Real peer review is what happens after you've passed the bullshit thing called peer review. Yes. Okay.
0: So the paper was accepted by experimental gerontology. They went on to publish it. This is called life's slow fuse. No, L- "Life Slow Fuse" was the title as sent to Nature, and I changed the title because
1: I did not want to
0: uh,
1: compromise the story. I didn't so want to confuse the story. The original submission was called "Life Slow Fuse." Right. We probably have a copy of that. Somewhere. Oh, of course. All right. Then the ger- experimental gerontology paper. What is it called? The reserve capacity hypothesis. That's okay. Which is a much less catchy title, but nonetheless,
0: the paper. I'm very proud of how it's written. People read it who were not expert could understand it. The abstract is extremely clear. And it ends with the clear point that because we have unearthed, we have predicted, and Carol Greider has shown that wild mice telomeres are short and that telomeres have been elongated by captivity, that there is a clear danger that the mice we are using for drug safety testing are biased in an egregious way. And the bias would look like this. A mouse that has very long telomeres has an indefinitely large capacity to replace damaged tissue. And it has a vulnerability uh, to cancer that is preternaturally high. So we may be overrating, if we use these mice, we may be overrating the danger of causing cancer and vastly underrating the danger of toxicity. of toxicity. And in fact, one of the things. So the point was you give a mouse who's got a effectively infinite capacity to replace its tissues, a toxin, and either the toxin is so deadly that it dies right away. But if it doesn't die right away, it just eats up the insult. Um, so those animals would lead us to release drugs. By insult, what you mean is cellular necrosis damage? Yeah. yeah. What this would cause us to do is release drugs onto the market for human use that are highly toxic
1: across the body. Well, and you, wait a second. If if the mice if the mouse standard was the last standard, well, no. Even right? if it's not the last standard, well, it's because important to say this. The problem is, I mean,
0: you you can imagine how hard it is to test on large, slowly reproducing. Animals. Well, the
1: ethics of testing on humans is very absolutely restricted. So, and is the the last cheap place. It's the last cheap place. Large N data. Not only large N, but it's the one place that you can make the following move.
0: You can imagine that in many circumstances, the accelerated lifespan the accelerated life cycle of mice allows you to see long-term damage as it would accrue in humans on a very short time scale Mm. that doesn't work with monkeys it doesn't work with human patients it works with mice maybe but in the case of mice with ultra-long telomeres
1: those insults will be invisible well let's just i want to back up because i think this is a really important part of the story what you're saying is if you take an organism that has an expected, let's say 40 year lifetime. It's very expensive time wise to say we ran this experiment and found that uh, there was no immediate damage that was visible, but towards the very end of their lives, we saw a marked increase in morbidity or. Yeah. I mean, if you took a drug and
0: it knocked 15 years off your life on average, that might, not show up in any notable way in a short term study there was pressure to right, re- and nobody is going to want to let drugs, you know, you don't want to wait 40, 50 years to find out what happens to these patients. So what we do is we make the assumption that if we give large amounts of a drug to an animal that lives a very short life, we will see those effects early. And if the animal happens to have ultra long telomeres, you won't see those effects early. So it's a perfect storm. For causing us to release drugs that should never have been released into public. Can you think of one? Oh, I sure can. Certainly. Vioxx, for example. So Viox was discovered to do heart damage, right? Heart damage. How do you, why do we know that it's heart damage? Well, the thing about hearts, A, hearts, for reasons we can get into maybe another time, hearts have a very low capacity for self-repair. Right? That's why they're vulnerable not much to heart Turnover. Repair. Not much capacity for repair, not much turnover. Now there, there's an adaptive reason for that. But um but hearts don't repair themselves very well in a healthy person. And when they fail, it's hard to ignore. Right? If somebody who's 30 has their heart fail, there's questions asked, right? So anyway, Viox was released into the
1: public having passed drug safety testing. This isn't the only system that doesn't have a lot of mitosis like for example neurons
0: neurons don't have a lot uh, cartilage doesn't have a lot Got it. um your eye cells don't now note all of the tissues i've just mentioned when was the last time you heard about anybody having you know cancer of the cartilage of their knee, cancer of the heart. No, if they almost, get brain cancer, it tends to be glial. It's glial cells, exactly. Right, right. So the tissues that have very low capacity for self-repair right. do tend to wear out and they don't tend to get cancer, which is exactly one of the predictions of my paper. Right. Okay. So um, Viox is known to do heart damage. That created a big scandal because how the hell did it get through drug safety testing? turns out a lot of drugs have done this. We've seen it in Gleevec, Fenfen, erythromycin your doctor probably still doesn't know that erythromycin does heart damage Yikes. right there's all of these cases of drugs that were released and then later understood to do heart damage now my claim is they don't actually do heart damage they do cellular damage
1: and the and heart, heart is the is only thing yeah 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 this right. is this, geez this is like another layer of this
0: thing it's like a huge
1: fucking nightmare right because well, but it's this thing about like perseverance and disagreeability you've got all sorts of things that sound like something that invalidates the theory. And then it's sort of theories upon theories that allow you to see the original simplicity of the idea. I see the original idea is very simple, but if you know a lot of like weird facts about what you think are just mice or something about hearts, you can't put together what is going on. The idea that ambient damage is only manifest in the heart because that's the one system, uh, you know, or, or the neural system that like really doesn't have a lot of mitosis. So, well, piece of
0: advice to anybody who finds themselves in remotely similar waters. Mm-hmm. The signal that you are on the right track is that stuff starts canceling. Complexity in the story which has accumulated because something was missing starts yeah. disappearing in the okay. story you, you you begin to take on a model anyway So yes, we've got a situation
1: where we've got a bunch of drugs mysteriously producing okay, so heart damage you, So now you've got a paper that's out. You've yep. got a real-world application. You've got an A theory coming out of evolutionary theory. It's making a molecular prediction. Yep. Successfully predicts mouse telomeres. One of the world's leading labs has confirmed the prediction. Yep. Where are we now? What what, what year is this? Oh, God. Well, let's see. The paper came out. In- and, and my recollection, and to just to be horrible about this, is is that your fucking department at the University of Michigan, which has some great people, is also holding you back and enervating you year after year by not allowing. Because this, this is, this is groundbreaking stuff. This is Nobel quality work at least one or two times over in my opinion. Now I could be wrong. I'm biased because of your brother. I'm your brother. But w- what concerns me here is, is that you are not comfortable with what this story really might be.
0: No, I'm I, look, it's not my, it's not mine to judge. I'm very proud of this work and
1: the yeah, work. But, but the problem Brett, is, is that Jerry Coyne and Richard Dawkins, did not know that Dick Alexander Leonard Hayflick and George Williams. Yeah. Were all on this thing because that community had broken down. You know, the
0: irony is I sent a letter to Dawkins when this was going on asking for his help. And he sent back a letter saying, um, this is very interesting. It's not my area of specialty. You should talk to Bill Hamilton. And I was in the process of writing a letter to Bill Hamilton on, uh, on uh, Dawkins' suggestion, at the point that Bill Hamilton uh, came back from uh, Africa, having he was pursuing a remote hypothesis about humans having accidentally unleashed AIDS into the world uh, with uh, polio vaccine. But anyway, um, so
1: Bill, Bill Hamilton. I'm sorry, not everybody's going to know. This is yeah. the guy who came up with inclusive fitness. Yes, and- he
0: he was one of the great geniuses of uh, evolutionary. Uh, biology in the late twentieth century. And he was held back by John Maynard, right? Um, I don't know that story. I, you know, I think
1: Maynard is interviewed on Web of Stories. Where Maynard started, Smith, yeah, sorry, yeah, Maynard Smith, right, yeah, and Maynard Smith talks about. Like, you know, it was very unfortunate. I didn't really understand who he was. Uh, you should check it out. It's pretty amazing. Well, as long as we're doing this. Yeah. Years after this story had
0: cooled. Yeah. I ran across a paper from John Maynard Smith's that I now don't remember exactly what its nature was, but it appeared to predict my whole story. Uh-huh. Right? And John Maynard Smith was dead. I couldn't contact him. I really wanted to uh-huh. say, oh my God, you nailed it. Right? But anyway... um. So I was in the process of writing to Bill Hamilton to get his help. Um, you know, he was sort of on a par with George Williams. Uh, and he went into a coma on his trip back from Africa, having contracted malaria. And then there was, I think, complication with the uh, aspirin that he took or something. And he uh, never woke from his coma and he died tragically. Um, so he never got the letter and who knows what he would have done.
1: But okay, but, but look, that's 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 a tragic and interesting story. But Hayflick was positive towards you. Williams was positive towards you. And Dick Alexander, those were the three that blew me away. That's a huge amount of fire. That's a lot of firepower and it wasn't enough, but here's the punchline to the story
0: effectively at the point that my paper is out. Right. And it, very directly alleges the danger with yeah. these drugs being released when they're not safe. And the drugs have started emerging and turning out not yeah, to be safe. Right. And the government is now really interested okay. in what's going on. The government puts together a FDA commission to study the question of the book that they put out. Literally a book that they put out at the end of their study is called the future of drug safety. You I hope can, it's a blue ribbon panel. It, uh, it's not exactly clear what it was. What is clear is that you can search the manuscript of this book. Nowhere does it mention mouse. Antagonistic. It pleiot- doesn't mention antagonistic pleiotropy. It doesn't mention the genus Mus. It doesn't mention telomeres. It's not in there. It's alleged in the literature in broad daylight
1: that this is what is causing the yeah. problem. And. Well, the, the, now you're. See, this is the vampire effect where you don't exist if nobody reacts. Right. And so I start going to
0: members of the press. I think this is a huge goddamn story. Oh Somebody God, is going to make a career on it. And I call it members of the press. And it's always the same, right? Always the same. It's always the same. They're very excited about this story. No, no, this is, initially, right, the reporter... The reporter is excited. Yeah. And then the reporter... Talks to someone. talk eat? to someone. And then either they stop returning your calls yeah. or they say... I'm sorry, the story doesn't hang together. It's again and again and yeah, again. Yeah. And there's just nothing you can do. You do you
1: remember what I said about the the uh, distributed idea suppression complex? Yeah. And the people who, who
0: man it don't even know what they are for most of them. They don't know what well, role but,
1: they're playing with well, you. Look, you see the same thing with like string theory because none of the reporters are actually string theorists. So they're dependent upon this. You saw this with um, this woman alleging that she had the Epstein story three, three years earlier, but that the editors said, well, we, we might lose access to the baby pictures of the uh, Royal grandchildren. Like, th- th- you know, you, you're seeing this with catch and kill. There's this, I mean, I want you to take this seriously. You're just showing a part of what I'm calling the disc, the distributed idea suppression complex. We have 50 years of such stories. Yep. And it happens that in our family, three out of four of us created such a story, trying to get a PhD. And the idea for me is that every time you have to go into some closed system, like there's a committee meeting or there's a blue ribbon commission, or there's a peer review process or there's a, uh, what do they call them? The panels, um, study groups for grants. That's where the disc lives. We know that it's localized to the things that protect the integrity of science. It's an autoimmune disease where what we have is an ability to stop highly disruptive ideas from getting a hearing in the general population of experts by virtue of the fact that a carefully chosen group of experts can stop publication because look, if you, if you're wrong about this stuff, there's a cost. Yeah. It's not, it's not cheap. No. I mean, in fact, it would have been, career ending. I, I'm pretty sure. Had I been, I don't know that it would be career ending if it was done in good faith, but you know, this is my, my problem with this is, is that you're sitting on one of the great scientific stories. I would say that I've ever heard, but you know, I'm sort of kind of saying, well, Brett, what happens next? You know, obviously I know a lot of this stuff. Uh, I've forgotten it, but I live this with you. Yeah. And this is, I, I can vouch that this is more or less the order of events as it was taking place, as we didn't understand what was happening.
0: Yep. So I have to go through the final Carol Greider chapter in order for this story to fully make sense. Where the Nobel prize is given. Uh, That's the, that's the very tail end. Make sure you include that. Okay. So at the point that my relationship with Carol is changing its tenor and she is becoming hostile and I'm not clear on what's going on. I contact her and I discover through talking to her that she and Mike are about to publish their paper
1: on the long telomeres of laboratory mice. So this is the Delta between uh, wild type and laboratory mice. Yeah. And I'm shocked because
0: she's told me they're keeping it in house and Instead, they've got a paper that they are, she says, in final revisions. They are that day submitting their final revisions to nucleic acid research with their paper. And I say, Carol, can I see the paper? And she says, yes. And she sends me a manuscript, not the preprint of the paper. She sends me a manuscript of the paper, no acknowledgments, no figures. And I contact her and I say, can I see the acknowledgments and the figures? She sends them to me. And I contact her and I say, Carol, I'm disturbed. This was my hypothesis that you were testing. I should probably be an author on this paper, but at the very least I need to be an acknowledgement in this paper so that I can go back and point to it and say it that changes was...
1: everything that it was a prediction. It wasn't just something that was stumbled upon. Absolutely. Yeah. And
0: her response is, I have been through my email and I see no evidence of the communications you are talking about. Now, when I said at the beginning that I had called her, that was my,
1: that was my error. This is such fucked up. I mean, I don't swear a lot on this program, Yeah, but this is such fucking academic, petty, stupid ass bullshit. This is like one of the great stories of all time. It's one of the great stories of all time, maybe.
0: And human life, Hangs in the balance on this No kidding. Right? Okay. So, Carol does get awarded the Nobel Prize. Carol Greider, Elizabeth Blackburn, and Shostak. Shostak, who mentions at the point that the Nobel Prize is awarded, that he was shocked as all hell to get a Nobel Prize because his work was so deep in the history of telomeres that we just didn't expect it and suddenly...
1: No, I should say, I want to be very clear, right? all of these people have made fantastic Nobel worthy discoveries. There's zero allegation that these people weren't deserving. No, absolutely. No. And they, you know,
0: Carol and Elizabeth got their Nobel prize for the discovery of telomerase, which is a huge, huge, huge progress. So anyway, I don't deny that they were worthy of this prize, but what Carol Greider does with her Nobel lecture, right? Nobel lecture being the biggest lecture a scientist will ever give the lecture. And filmed and filmed is she delivers a paper in which she very oddly has now embraced my entire uh, set of hypotheses about the effect. She has come over from the Comparison between the paper of mine that she panned and said, didn't make any sense. She is now a total convert to the idea that senescence across the body is being caused
1: by Hayflick limits that are telomere based. Okay. And this is the first public incident that we know of in which the Delta between the negative comments about on your paper, which, is not an anonymous peer review. We we have that. We have it in an envelope from her. Got it. And (laughs) it's immediately after the Nobel prize that the wisdom of that line of thinking is embraced. Right. But there's
0: more to the Nobel lecture. So she spends her Nobel lecture on what is admittedly a very beautiful, uh, presentation of the connection between um, telomeres and senescence. She goes through tissue after tissue. She says cirrhosis of the liver is what happens when you, you have short telomeres in your liver, et cetera. She goes through tissue after tissue. She projects the uh, data, the blot actually from the paper with Mike Heeman, the paper that I should have been a co-author on. Yeah. She projects it on the screen, but she does some weird freaking dance where she, instead of describing the long telomeres of uh, laboratory mice as a major bug in the system she describes it as a happy accident effectively because it allows us to test certain things like oh isn't it delightful that they have long telomeres and it's like what the hell are you doing there is so much writing on correcting this and you're presenting it like it's just a bonus and she in her presentation she's got Several experiments that I did not know she had run that I had suggested to her. I said, you know, things like, um, Carol, do you have any idea if a cell has many different telomere lengths? Is it the shortest telomere that controls how many reproductions a cell can do? She's run that experiment. Interesting. Lo and behold, it's the shortest telomere. It's a good guess. But anyway, so she goes through this. There's no mention of me. There's no mention of the actual implications of the, uh, the long telomeres for things like science and safety testing and all of that and i can't seem to raise the issue of the safety uh, question with anybody right at best i get journalists who are interested until they call somebody and the somebody's on the other end i know what they say they say everybody knows that mice aren't great models in fact there's a paper out there that says something like the mice lie it's not about this issue it's just about the fact that mice aren't a perfect match the issue in question could be solved. It could be addressed thoroughly. And for all I know, once the Jack's lab figured out what they were doing, for all I know, they quietly have fixed this. And there was a private, you know, I've
1: heard that there was a private meeting in which they decided. Look, this is the thing. Yep. You you see something like this in statistics. Everybody knows that most distributions that are bell-shaped are not normal, right? Yep. And on the other hand, we all use normal distributions. And as a result, there are lots of things that at one level, everybody knows, but don't percolate down to the important layers in which we test things. And I don't know where, like you and I have never been able to fully put together because we're not molecular researchers and I'm not even a biologist. How important are these results? How robust are they? Has there been a change? This is a quiet world at some level.
0: It's a quiet world, but I think what I have concluded, yeah, working backwards from the phenomenology of the field and yeah. how it reacts to this problem, is that there's a tremendous amount resting on failing to acknowledge the error. Even though the error was yes. obviously an honest error to begin right. with, they would rather sweep it under the rug. I mean, imagine you've got all these knockout mice, right? These knockout mice, there's a major investment in them. It takes a lot of work to no, knock out dude, a particular you've got team. a
1: central you've got a single point of failure right whose um projections are, are tendrils into everything
0: right and you've got how many careers built on papers that are now suspect this
1: is like an error irre- this is like a centralized irre- uh irreproducibility crisis yes it's it's that bad or
0: worse okay and and you know what happens if, let's say somebody hears this podcast yeah. and they check into it and they find out lo and behold, this story
1: is true. Yeah. Well, now the FDA has a problem. Well, wait, wait, wait a second. I don't want to get too far out over our skis. We have enough listeners that people will get a chance to hear an unbelievable story. And if there are things in the story that are not true or misremembered or unkind, or there've been changes, or maybe we don't really fully understand how the drug testing works. I'm open. And I I want to be very clear and I want this in the podcast. I'm open to the idea that the most straightforward implications of the story are subject to adjustment. However, having lived the story, I can say that this was an egregious story at multiple points with conflicts between the evolutionary community, the biomedical community, the professional publishing community, Um, this is a terrible story and it's also an amazing and beautiful and wonderful story. And, you know, I felt really lousy at the beginning of this podcast, goading you and prodding you, but I am so bored of you. No offense as the guy who stood up to the funny kids at Evergreen (laughs) and you know, we know what's in the heads of these people. If you're at Evergreen, you're not that good. Yep. Right. And that was like, this is the. I just want to be open about it. Like- no, I, look, I, I appreciate it, and
0: I and I, I I'm glad to have this story out. Um, the story has many different layers of meaning. Um, I know, I remember where I was when I finally sat down to watch Carol Greider's Nobel lecture, and I had one of the oddest experiences of my life. I was uh, I was actually in a hammock watching her lecture, watching her present my hypothesis without my name anywhere on it. And then she projects this image from her paper with Mike Heeman. And I was flooded with two simultaneous emotions that are just completely incompatible, right? I've never felt anything like it. I was absolutely elated to see my work projected on a Nobel stage,
1: right? That changed me. You know what I call the horse and rider pro- problem? No. The point of the official complex of science is to knock the rider and take the horse where the mm. horse is the theory and the rider is the attribution. Well, this was it. I was elated
0: and livid simultaneously mm. and I, I can still almost feel what it, it was almost like my body was trying to figure out I was one half supposed to feel one thing and the other feels the other. But this story has many levels of importance. Personally, it gave me the ability. I was already, as you are, very good at not being persuaded by the fact that everybody else disagrees with you that that has an implication. Every great idea starts with a minority of one and you have to be able to endure being alone with a great idea in order to advance the ball significantly. This story was so um, extreme and so clear in the end that it just left no doubt. And I must say, I don't know how young students can arrange to, uh, confront material so that if they're really good, they get a clear demonstration like this, that they're really good so they know to keep going. Look,
1: I think you're selfish and I don't mean to be horrible about it. I think that this story is an inspiration. I've lived the story with you. I have my own version of the story where instead of it being the slide from the paper of Greider and Heeman, it's equations that are known as the Cyberg-Witten equations. And you see what you did with somebody else putting you know putting it up on a board it starts to change the field and you suddenly say you mean I'm not an idiot right. right and what i'm claiming is that the next layer of this is well why don't you just submit a paper if you have ideas submit a paper submit a paper submit a paper who is this fucking supposed to fool well right and this this i mean i just i think the idea is is that if you have a seat on the exchange yeah you know that by submitting a paper, your paper will get reviewed because you have you present a credible threat. It doesn't occur to you that what you're saying is effectively like let them eat cake right. to somebody whose paper is going to be reviewed by the person who's like holding them back. No, this is exactly when Jerry Coyne
0: came at me yeah. with, you know, Brett doesn't understand his, his uh, explorer mode stuff is, is nonsense. And then Richard Dawkins echoed it, Brett doesn't understand natural selection. Um, and you know, if he did, he'd submit a paper. My feeling is I lived this story and you're gonna pretend that there is even a mechanism so you,
1: look, here's my proposal to get a proper here's my hearing proposal. All right. Yeah. I think that you, Pia, and myself are indicative of an entire layer of Gen X academicians and now probably millennial academicians whose work was suppressed and we don't feel comfortable saying these words, which is that the purpose of the university system in the time that we were there was in large measure to make sure that big disruptive new ideas did not upset the apple cart because there was the ability to deny. I mean, this is what you guys call interference competition which is that you keep people from sitting down in the chairs in a game of musical chairs. And then the idea is we have lovely parting gifts, uh, for our contestants, Doug Prasher, who did green fluorescent protein, uh, ends up driving a shuttle bus in Huntsville, Alabama features in this, you know, I don't know, was it the front page of the science times a year later, he's still driving a fucking shuttle bus in Huntsville, Alabama. Meanwhile, we're being told that Americans don't care about STEM. We're not really good at science, but thank God, thank God our friends in Asia are amazing at science because as bad as our children are at thinking for themselves, we've got huge numbers of people who want to come from China, South Korea, India, and Taiwan in order to do the study in the labs, which is actually work. And I'm the guy who found the secret study in 1986, which says, Hey, we're going to have to pay these American academicians over six figures very soon because of the supply demand relationships. And then they took away the demand curves and they only showed the supply curves. They said it was a demographic rather than an economic analysis. So price and wage certainly didn't enter into it. Like, our problem is that the American scientific enterprise headquartered in the national science foundation, national Academy of sciences and our university systems is fraudulent and it serves to suppress radical new ideas. And I'm not saying that everything is guaranteed to be right about your story, but this is a story that you and Carol should have ward out in public without your, Submitting into a system where you don't know who reviewed this. You don't know how to respond to the comments. You can't measure the Delta where somebody in one year says, this is crap. And the next year they say, this is my theory, right? And what I want, I would love to invite Carol Grider onto this program because I think she deserves the right to rebut what you're saying. Yep. That'd be cool and uh and elizabeth blackburn is fantastic i'd love to have and and these are great scientists this is frankly you're gonna say this is me being too nice
0: yeah i'd even like carol to come clean and just put this behind us i'm not you know
1: at this point it's not a question of that brett there is you have the right to offer somebody a hand up yep but you're skipping the step of let me be blunt how many universities offered you a position after you were run out of this crappy evergreen state college um, by a weak president uh, who refused to stand up for academic freedom freedom of speech and anti-racism which you exemplify professorship zero how many biology lectures were you invited to give at top tier AAU universities, American association of universities, not association of American. Universities? Okay. What the fuck is that? I mean, let's, let's just say the word fuck a lot cause I had Andrew Yang in that chair. I don't say fuck a lot. Yeah. Okay. So the idea is you can have a Maoist insurgency against a student of Dick Alexander who's supported by George Williams with support from Leonard Hayflick He's predicting something from evolutionary theory It registers in molecular biology. It may have drug testing implications. And like nothing silence. And you're terrified to talk about this. I don't think I'm terrified to talk. Well, about it. I'm sorry. Can you tell me something? Where have you told you? You have a podcast. Yeah where is the story written up? Where is the story lodged? You and I have the ability to lodge it. I'm forcing you to do this on my podcast. I haven't heard you do a podcast about this. I hear you talking about free speech. I hear you doing things with the Heterodox Academy. I hear you doing things in the intellectual dark web, something with Andy, no something with Antifa. Okay. The whole purpose of the intellectual dark web is to keep the channel open based on merit Because if we do something like the diversity of ideas, you know, for all I know, the people who are suppressing you are more diverse than you are, you know? Okay. These are ideas that needed to come out. There are health implications potentially of these ideas. This is not ethical to suppress. And in fact, it's not ethical for you not to talk about this, not to be rude. No, no. Look, I get this. I tried
0: for a decade to get this story to come out. Now, I'm sure I would have been less aggressive on the social front. I would have let Carol go in order to get the story out and get the drug safety issue addressed. Now, I don't know.
1: I don't know what you regard that as. Maybe that's... Un- it's not a question of this. Look, there is a Carol Grider and Elizabeth Blackburn and everybody else in like senescence land, Ju- Judith Campisi, who, who knows? Everybody's got a problem, which is there's way too much transparency and there's too little funding and there's not enough autonomy and there's too much peer review. And for whatever reason, a new game has cropped up where everybody says, we need more transparency, more diversity. We need to um, make sure that we're not wasting taxpayer dollars we have you know ever more oversight all of this is denaturing our society we have to compete with china now we're going to have issues with iran and russia and we are losing our minds because we are serving a baby boom group almost like you pick a leading university it is headed currently by a baby boomer Mm -hmm. that's almost true without even telling me if i if i ask you hey brett Pick a university. Don't tell me which one it is. I will tell you that the number of administrators at that university has soared above the levels of admissions. The tuition has soared above medical inflation, which is above regular inflation. If I ask you about the grant structure, older professors are winning more grants and younger people are winning fewer grants. This is a giant complex. I am going to have somebody from sugar baby university, which is a subset of seeking arrangement because the baby boomers made Student debt non dischargeable in bankruptcy. And now this group is offering uh, older men the ability to date younger women with an allowance, right? So we're, we're, we're starting to get into gray area sex work um, where the baby boomers, to keep this lifestyle to which they've become accustomed, are effectively enslaving. Well, they're hoarding well being on every front, including the sexual, well, which is no
0: surprise okay. so at here's, all. Here's, here's
1: my way. claim we are in a holding pattern. I'm in my 50s. You're in your 50s. I've done work that has never seen the light of day. You've done work that's never seen the light of day. P has done work that's never seen the light of day. I don't know about Heather. My claim is it's time to crash land the planes into the control tower. It's enough. Wholeheartedly agree. Okay. Brett, um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the portal. Come back anytime. I want to say that anybody who is misportrayed by this uh, podcast is welcome. We are not claiming uh, to have absolute and universal knowledge. You are more than welcome to correct the story. If you have knowledge about this, that uh, checks out. And um, but the problem is, is that this is a story that needs to be told. It's like the story of Margot O'Toole and David Baltimore that played out at MIT. When I believe that she found that she couldn't reproduce the work of Dr. M. Nishikari and Um, Of course, the system turned on the person who is trying to say, hey, I'm seeing irregularities. I'm seeing problems We have a biomedical complex that needs whistleblowers. It needs iconoclasts. It needs challengers The food pyramid has been off for years. Our health recommendations are completely off I think that this is an essential story You need to move out of intellectual dark web stuff, which was about keeping the pipe open Let somebody else do that and it is time to hire you as a professor at a top tier university, and I'll be happy to talk to you about what happened when you and Richard Dawkins encountered each other on stage in Chicago, because I think in terms of pure evolutionary theory, it is time to boost a young Richard Dawkins, uh, who contributed two of the most important ideas, uh, in the form of extended, uh, phenotype in the meme, which largely dislodges the old Richard Dawkins and his hatred of religion, which has appeared to take over uh, his thinking as regards his own contributions to biology. We got a lot of work to do. No question. All right, my friend. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. You've been through the portal with Dr. Brett Weinstein, professor in exile from the Evergreen State College. Please subscribe on Apple or on Stitcher or on Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Navigate over to our YouTube channel. And not only subscribe, but remember to click the bell icon to be notified when our next episode drops Uh, and hope to see you back on the next episode of the portal. Be well, everyone.